you so much. Um, I am wrestling here with an enormous and very heavy book. I'm doing this the old school way, the Luddite way, because I really wanted you to see this face. It's a man called Joe Shimung. Uh, confident, as you can tell, had every reason to be. Good looking, came from a very prominent family of Beijing scholars and aced everything through his life, really. A series of high grades and successes. And when the photograph on which that portrait uh, was taken, he was in his mid-twenties and about to get married and have a little girl, Carol. She's in her 50s now, and she does not remember him at all, because a few months after she was born in 1966, the Cultural Revolution broke out, and her father made some passing comment. It really didn't take much in those days, sometimes just an offhand remark or even just an accident of birth, like being born into a landlord family. The result was that he was taken away by the Red Guards, and he was held uh, for several weeks. And after a while, he did manage to escape, but he killed himself. So he exists for Carol, just as a handful of pictures like that, uh, a handful of stories from her mother. And more than anything, he exists as an absence, she says. Even though she's now a mother herself, she says she still can't imagine what it would mean to have that space be filled to have a father at all. I came to know all this because I had lunch with Carol's husband one day. He's an investor and a very astute observer of China's leadership. And I thought that as usual, we'd just be meeting to have a chat about political gossip and the economy, which we duly did. But towards the end of lunch, he began telling me about a trip that he and Carol had made a few years before to the village where her father had been held. And they'd gone there in the hope of finding his body and laying it to rest at last, all these decades later. And actually the farmers there did remember her father and they even recalled how quiet he'd been on the morning of his death. So they were somewhat sympathetic, but then when the family asked for help in finding his body, they were just uncomprehending because they said there were so many bones from those days jumbled up in the soil and how were they supposed to know which ones were his? It definitely wasn't the worst story I'd heard from the Cultural Revolution, as cruel as it was. In fact, in many ways, it's pretty typical. Uh, we're talking about a movement that lasted 10 years, that saw around 2 million people either be killed or hounded to their deaths and tens of millions more persecuted, seeing their whole lives wrecked, as Carol's family's was. But I think it was perhaps because it wasn't the most grotesque or horrific account I'd heard from those days that it haunted me, that I couldn't stop thinking about it. It was perhaps because it was a story that could come up over coffee, because it was so commonplace that there wasn't really much point in searching for one body among many others. And it was so close. I mean, suddenly it seemed in touching distance. And for the first time, I realised that the Cultural Revolution really wasn't history. It was life. It was something that was shaping China, that under the surface, it's still there, 
molding the country to this day, shaping its economy, its politics, its culture, its psyche, its soul. The portrait I showed you of Zhou Ximeng was painted by an artist called Xu Wei Xin, and Carol's husband suggested I go to see him because he was working on a whole series of portraits of people who'd been caught up in the movement, some famous and, and some not. And they are immense pictures. They're about two and a half metres high. You go and see them and it's almost as if they're inspecting you because they're there in the studio around you. He's only actually been able to show these pictures in China together once, incidentally, because the subject, even when he began working on it, uh, was already very sensitive, and it's much more so now. There were around 100 pictures in the series, but Xu Weixin told me that one of them was actually missing, and it was the first portrait he ever did. So he was eight when the Cultural Revolution broke out, and he was really shocked when he was told that his teacher was in fact the daughter of a landlord. He'd liked her, and I think to some degree he was almost ashamed of his own naivety, that he thought this woman was admirable or likeable or worthy of his respect. And so he did what he believed he should do, and he drew a really hideous caricature of her and pinned it up to the blackboard. And all these years later, he remembered, as if it had happened this morning, the moment that she had walked into the classroom and seen it and turned white. She didn't say a word, but she knew where it might lead. Because many of the first victims of the Cultural Revolution were teachers attacked by their pupils. I mean, often just teenagers. And she said to me, well, I was eight. Yes, but of course I was responsible. It's only a question of how big or small my responsibility was. And these two encounters with Carol and her husband and then with the artist Xu Xin, were really the beginning of Red Memory. And through them came the questions at its heart. How can the Cultural Revolution be both everywhere and nowhere in China? And what does it mean now? And also, when the worst has happened, how do we go on? How do we face what we have done and find a way to live with it? It's really extremely hard for anyone, even in China, to understand the Cultural Revolution because it was so many things in one. It lasted from 1966, when Mao unleashed it, to after his death, around 10 years later. And in many cases, perpetrators later became victims. So there was a real shifting of political currents all the time. It was a time of immense horror. But it was also a time of absurdity. I mean, at one brief stage, traffic police were even ordered to direct cars using copies of the Little Red Book rather than batons, because only Xi Jinping thought, uh, only, as a Freudian slip for you, only Mao Zedong thought could show you the way to go. At its heart, the Cultural Revolution was really Mao's reassertion of political supremacy. He'd launched the Great Leap Forward to collectivise agriculture and industrialise at an extraordinary pace. And this was a project so hubristic and nonsensical that it led to tens of millions of people dying in a famine. And his project had to be reined in by more pragmatic figures within the party. So he'd lost authority and he wanted to wipe out political opposition, uh, but it was also an ideological campaign because he believed that communists had lost their way and been seduced by power and they just needed to believe a bit more, really. 
purges weren't new, but this time he turned outside the party. He went outside the structures and used the masses and used young people in particular at first, often just kids, people in their early teens. And as the masses were drawn in, it became increasingly unpredictable and widespread. It spread through the whole land and it involved personal grudges and ambitions as well as political zeal. And then in the later stages, it became more bureaucratic and more orderly, but it was still deadly. Many thousands of hundreds of thousands of people executed. Partly because of all these contradictions and these different phases, very few people agree on what it was and what it meant. And it's been contested since it happened. I mean, after it ended, the authorities called it a catastrophe and they used it to justify the turn away from Maoism towards the market and greater individualism, but also to justify the need for political control. The idea that it's a choice between the Communist Party or turmoil and chaos and mass murder is still very potent. But they didn't want people to dwell on what happened. They wanted people to just say, that was terrible. Let's move on. It's never been completely taboo, but it has been very carefully policed in the way it's discussed. And that's been increasingly the case under Xi Jinping. And then the official repression has been compounded by the personal trauma. Most people wanted to forget. What unites the people who spoke to me in Red Memory, uh, including Xu Wei Xin, was that they are the people who chose to remember when other people wanted to forget. And often, as I found, they remembered in really unexpected ways, like the Red Guard who remained an unabashed Maoist and just thought really the biggest problem was that the Cultural Revolution had ended, uh, but who also, rather to my surprise, turned out to be an admirer of Margaret Thatcher. Many people are still nostalgic for the era, as bizarre as that seems to us. They see it as a purer time of greater equality of meaning when officials weren't so corrupt. I mean, like nostalgia everywhere, it's as much about today as it is about the past. And some in China, not really the people in my book, but, but others there now, see growing parallels between the Cultural Revolution and today. They see the burgeoning personality cult around Xi, who's the most powerful leader since Mao. He's got an indefinite tenure. They see the political tightening, the reinsertion of the state into spheres that it re retreated from, really, like personal life and business and even the arts and entertainments. And when people protested against zero COVID policies at the end of last year, we even saw signs reading, we want reform, not the cultural revolution. But she is in many ways not like Mao. I mean, he loves discipline, not disruption. He loves control. In many regards, you might think of Donald Trump as the much more Maoist figure, reveling in turmoil, whipping up mass emotion by the powerful, the overturning of institutions that might cage or contain power, and above all, the incitement of hatred and division. I mean, of course, the circumstances were very, very different. And obviously, the consequences will be more so. No one is suggesting that the Cultural Revolution will simply be repeated in China, let alone elsewhere. But to look at the Cultural Revolution in all its extremity is also to learn something about ourselves. I started with Xu Weixin's portraits. And one of the things that struck me more and more as I learned about the Cultural Revolution was that his pictures did not discriminate, that everyone was painted in the same way. 
I mean, the art of the Cultural Revolution was very crudely political. It was always about distinguishing between good and bad, wrong and right. There were only heroes and villains. But the reality of the Cultural Revolution, of course, was very blurry because it was a time of impossible moral choices when, as I said, victims often were perpetrators as well. Xu said something that stuck with me long after we first met. He said, even if they are bad people, they're still people and I still have to respect them. And there, I think, is the lesson for us all, the need to be wary of those who draw divisions and encourage hate and who seek to demonise, but also the need to try to find a way to understand and respect others with all their flaws and frailties. And so Red Memory, for me, isn't a story about those people over there all those years ago. It's about human nature. It's about us. Thank you.